my job as a therapist is to give my clients freedom and empowerment. That's what I'm selling. That's what they're buying. Now I know that, I find it fairly easy to sell it because who wouldn't want freedom and indeed empowerment? Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Hey, listeners of the podcast, we've put together an exciting community where you can dive deeper into the content of every single episode. And for those of you who join this community from the podcast, we'll give you an access to a course we've just put together worth $500, all yours for free, while we're sending this out to our listeners of the podcast. Simply go to sellingwithlove.com forward slash podcast to be eligible to get this course for free. And we look forward to seeing you in the community. Thanks again for listening. And now, Enjoy the episode. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to the Selling with Love podcast. I have a dear friend, an amazing author, a keynote speaker, and someone I've had a chance to work with for almost a decade now, who's actually been doing innovative work in the field of therapy, the one and only Marissa Peer. Now, if you're not familiar with Marissa Peer, she is a British therapist, best-selling author, keynote speaker, and the developer and creator of RTT, Rapid Transformational Therapy. It's a new and exciting method that's been award-winning, that has taken the world by storm, and she draws from principles like psychology, hypnotherapy, NLP, cognitive behavior therapy, and neuroscience, neuroplasticity, and more to create fast, effective, and long-lasting results. I had the pleasure to work with Marissa during my time at Mindvalley, and she's one of the top authors on their platform, and she's a contributing writer for the Daily Mail, Red Magazine, Elle Magazine, and so many more. The reason I bring Marissa today is not only because she's built an amazing practice and teaches so many people her methodology to become successful coaches themselves, but I had a question when it comes to our resistance, our reluctance when it comes to sales. Where does it come from? Is this something that is active for most sales professionals? Why we have this fear of rejection? What can we investigate here? And perhaps there are some key ways that her method can help us in the process as well. It's with great pleasure that I bring Marissa Peer on the show. Marissa, welcome. Thank you so much. And it's really lovely to see your face again. I know it's been a while. I think the last time was at a live event as well. We've been a little locked down since pre-COVID. And just a bit of a life update, what's happening now? I think you're back in the United Kingdom. I know your therapy and your practice has been growing. So give me a little update for myself and the listeners. Well, we still live in LA, but we came back from the summer. My daughter just got married and we'd just done some training in Berlin and Amsterdam and in London. So we're still teaching RTT. And I think we've taught about 15,000 therapists all around the world. We've now got it into about 1,500 schools in the U.S. and the U.K., which is amazing. And we're just about to go to Estonia. So, yeah, we've got a lot going on, and it's all good. I was sharing a little bit of my jealousy from going to Estonia. We were able to go there a couple of years ago for a Mind Valley Festival. So I will wish you the best there. And I'm going to go back into this core concept here. So sales. Sales is something that often comes with nasty words associated. And Oftentimes when I ask people what comes to mind when I mention sales or salesperson, and I'm hearing things like manipulative, sleazy, and pretty much all the negative words sometimes come across. So 
I'd be curious to know, is this something you've encountered in your practice, people that have this sales reluctance? And do you have any idea of where this comes from? Yeah, we often see sales rules very pushy, that they just want their commission. They don't really care about us. They just want to sell something because they want the money. And of course, when you understand human nature, you understand the minute we're born, we are hardwired and, in fact, super-coded to find connection and avoid rejection. And to the minute you're saying, would you like to buy this? Because they know I wouldn't. You feel rejected. So people take sales very personally. It's hard to be a door-to-door salesman, a cold-calling salesman, because they get rejected. People put the phone down. They don't understand that those people working in a cold-call office are often having a horrible time. And it's the only thing they can do to make a living. So on the one hand, we have this innate inbred fear that if you reject me, I will die. Because a thousand years ago, that was true. We died from rejection. If you watch something like Game of Thrones, if you were cast out from the tribe, you couldn't possibly make it on your own. Nowadays, you can live on your own for 50 years and never see a soul and you don't die from rejection. But you feel as if you were. So on the one hand, we have this absolute fear of being rejected and then we have people wanting to sell especially coaches who have another fear you know i'm helping people who are in pain surely i should give that away it's not a very spiritual thing to ask for money i don't like to ask for money i should be spiritual and involved and spiritual people often find it very hard to ask for money. And of course, then religion comes in. In the Bible, it says that rich people have sold their soul to the devil. So we've got at least three things going on here. I'm scared of rejection. It's not a good thing for us for money. If I have a lot of money, people won't like me. My friends will reject me. A figure I find amazing is that 70% of lottery winners are absolutely bankrupt in three years. What does that tell you? It tells you that they are so uncomfortable with money. They get rid of it all because we say things like, oh, he's a fat cat. Money, he's filthy rich. So we also have these beliefs that having money makes us a really bad person who isn't spiritual. You know, that very word, filthy rich and dirty money. And those people have sold their soul to the devil. So there's a lot of things going on. And if you don't feel worth it when you're asking for money, when you're asking for money, you really need to get very comfortable. I don't use the word money. I tend to say your investment is or the fee is, but I try to avoid saying the cost is. How much money you're going to give me is, I see it as something else. Because here's something to understand, especially if you're a coach. Everything we want in life is because of how it's going to make us feel. And if you are selling a service where people feel good, they will pay. So, you know, we spend a lot of money on designer trainers and designer bags and designer goods because they make us feel good. We'll spend a lot of money sometimes on fine dining because it makes us feel good. And when people are buying, they tend to want to buy something they own, like I'll buy a painting, I'll buy a television, I'll buy a phone, I'll buy my Nike trainers or my Air Jordans because I feel good. But if I'm buying a service and I don't actually hold that in my hand, how am I going to feel good? And you have to come back to everything you want just because of how it will make you feel. And coaches and therapists tend to make people feel really good. And most of my clients, in fact, the most common thing I hear is this is the best money I've ever spent I would have paid more. 
And a lot of the people I train say, you know, now I'm going out to work and people are saying, wow, this is worth every penny. I would have spent more. Because, as you know, at my daughter's wedding last weekend, it was incredibly expensive. But as the day went, I was like, you know what? It's so amazing. It actually was worth every penny. I was making memories there. It was amazing. And so sometimes you have to look at not what you've got in your hand that's an investment, what it's doing for you. Like people in pain will say, I'll pay anything to be out of pain. I worked with someone who had a stutter who said, I would mortgage my house to not stutter. Many women I work with in facilities out, I sell everything I've got just to have a baby. I mean, they don't have to do that, obviously, but you really got to get clear with what are people buying from you? What are they buying and why are they buying it? I know when I began to teach RTT, I was very clear. My job as a therapist is to give my clients freedom and empowerment. That's what I'm selling. That's what they're buying. Now I know that. I find it fairly easy to sell it because who wouldn't want freedom and indeed empowerment? I love what you shared here. Particularly one thing I want to zoom in on is how we make purchases by what makes us feel better, what makes us feel good. And I find it's, I don't know if it's a paradox or it's just an interesting insight that our buying behaviors are all about making us feel good. Yet the default selling behavior, especially if you don't have any practice, is that it doesn't feel good. It feels very scary. And I find that Typically in a sales, there's a transaction, so a feeling needs to be transacted. So why is it that we have such a fear and such a reluctance? And you've touched on a lot of points here, but it begs the question, if I still have that resistance, do I need to start healing? Is it childhood trauma? Is it current traumas? I need to probably do some activities to help me understand that, wow, when I'm selling this feeling, I'm helping others, I shouldn't fear doing so. You know, it's really important to understand something that's actually quite profound. Your beliefs about money and even your relationship with money is often set by the time you are five years old. So if you have a parent who says, I can't find the money, I don't know where the money's coming from. That's a very disempowering belief because no one says, okay, I need to pay my gas bill. I better go out and find the money because you don't find money. You learn to monetize a gift that you have, or where you can find something you're good at and monetize it, you're really set for life. So even now you need to think, well, what did my parents say about money? It slips through my fingers. I run out of money before I run out of week. I don't know where it's coming from. I can't find it. I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul. And when children hear these beliefs over and over again, I can't get the money. I can't find the money. It doesn't grow on trees. We just don't have the money. It's very disempowering. In fact, as a parent, one of your jobs with your children is to say, look, I know you want this little toy and you can earn 100 stars and you'll get the toy. But then what they do is go, you're going to empty the trash, mow the lawn. And we make kids do jobs that no one would They hate to get the money. And then they think, oh, right, to get money you got to do what you absolutely hate. And now we've got a new belief. First of all, I can't find money. I don't know where it's coming from. But I can get some if I do what I absolutely hate. Me and your jobs, wash the dishes, wash burnt pans, clean out the garage. And even though you want to help your children learn that, look, you can always earn money, try not to give them menial, horrible jobs because that sets them back. 
if they love cooking, say, well, you can make dinner for a week. You're good at something. You're good at IT, so you could help me here. And that's not easy, but it's always important to realize how are you raising your kids? You know, when I was a kid, my brother went to private school because he was a boy and he was supposed to be the bright one. And I went to the regular state school, the free school. And I noticed at a very early age something amazing. My brother's map would say, you have 11 businesses, you sold four, how many you've got left? Well, obviously the answer is seven, but my brother had sold four businesses. He owned 11, he was already super successful. His math said, you've got all these businesses, you sell four, but now he's got all the money. My math said, you have six bananas, you give two away, what have you got left? I've got four, but I don't have any equity. I've got bananas, my brother's got companies. And it's so interesting that schools talk about if you've got three apples and you eat one. And we should be saying if you have three companies and you sell one to an investor, because even at a very young age, our mind's able to work out, oh, I can buy and sell, I can trade, I can have this and trade it for that. We should be talking about apples and pears and bananas because when they're gone, they're gone. And they rot very quickly anyway. So even the way some children are taught maths as opposed to others is interesting. In fact, one of my clients told me something amazing. And it's because my clients tend to go back to really amazing history. So she had a great problem with money. She couldn't keep money. She never had enough. And she said that when she was little, her mother used to teach her to count with chocolate buttons. So she'd go, five buttons, have and that comes to ten. And then she could eat it, but she could never eat very many. It was like, oh, no, they're bad for you. And so she equated the chocolate with the money, which is you can't have very much. It's bad for you. And if you have too much, it does you harm. You can only eat three chocolate buttons because they rot your teeth. It's very bad for you. You only have a little bit. But because the mother was using chocolate as counters, amazing, at a very young age, maybe six, she got this belief about chocolate, which she referred to money. You can't have very much. It's very bad for you. You can only have a little bit. And so, so many of my clients who have huge issues asking for money, invoicing their clients, billing their clients, charging a higher fee, go back to a belief they had as a child. It's wrong to ask money. People don't like you if you have money. You should never talk about money. It's embarrassing. Don't ever tell anyone. You know, one of my clients told me a story, a very simple story. The she was one of three sisters. She was a grandmother's favorite. The grandma would come every Saturday and she would fold up a $5 bill and say, take that and don't let you. So they won't like you. Keep that secret. You're my favorite, but don't let them know they won't like you. And now she has a belief people don't like you if you have more money than them. And so if you are a coach or selling any service, take a little to track back. Where did I get these beliefs from? Where do they come from? Who told me that? Is that even true? Because so often our primitive need to belong has a belief that if I make money, I'll never know who my friends are. A lot of people say when you have money, you never know if people really love you or not. Hence, many lottery winners get rid of it because they'll say this, you know, if I stay in my community and I go to a bar and I don't pay for everyone, it's like, what? You've just won the lottery. But if I do for the game, there you go, showing off again. And I felt so lost. So I moved to a new community where I wasn't accepted because that was old money. And I was just this chavy lottery winner. And I didn't know who I was. 
I lost all the money, went back to where I was. And actually I felt better because one of the key things to understand about your mind, it's somewhat vexing, is your mind is wired to return to what is familiar while resisting what is unfamiliar. The lottery winners who keep their money already had money. If you are born to wealth, if you end up investing and respecting money, you'll keep it. Because if money is familiar, it's familiar. But when it's unfamiliar, we've never had it. We don't know how to manage it. If our history is I get money on Friday and it's all gone by the next Thursday, when I win the lottery, I'm going to do the same thing, just buy loads of stuff because that's all I know. And so in schools, we really should be teaching people to form a relationship with money based on respect. I'm sure you've heard that expression of fool and his money are easily part of my father used to say, they must have seen you coming whenever I bought something that he thought was a ridiculous price. And so then I started to feel embarrassed about buying things because he had a different belief. Money is hard-earned and you don't waste it. But when you're buying an experience, you're not wasting it. I've paid to go hot air ballooning in Egypt and indeed in Turkey. And that was one of the best things I ever paid for, buying experience. In fact, if you're dating someone, don't buy gifts, buy experiences because you remember them. Buy things together. I went into Cairo on horseback, see the pyramids. It was amazing. I've paid for some incredible experiences. And I'm so glad I did because I remember them more than the shoes I bought 10 years ago or the first BlackBerry phone. I don't remember any of that, but I remember experiences because they make me feel good. And as a coach, you are selling experiences, selling something that is priceless, giving people confidence and high self-esteem. And children with high self-esteem can say, this is my fee and I'm worth it. This is why that's expensive. Well, you're paying for my skill and my expertise and my talent. I know having converted many houses that getting a cheap builder is a terrible mistake. If I pay for a more expensive builder, I'm buying peace of mind. Nothing's going to fall apart. They turn up and do the job. And often you've heard the word false economy. So buying something because it's cheaper often is not a good idea. Well, sometimes it is, but frequently it really isn't. I love that from the stories you're sharing right now, there's a lot of triggers that I think people will be able to identify themselves with, whether it's your blocks around money, whether it's this fear of rejection, having these experiences that you're maybe not allowing yourself to have based on what programming you had at the childhood. So I would love to encourage everyone to do an audit based on everything that was highlighted here to see what is coming across in your conversations when you get to that place of sales. There's probably a story and I'm definitely going to put a link to more resources from your work, Marissa, because I know this is things that you work very extensively with to go heal these passes and make some changes. Now, I did notice something very incredible at the beginning of our session which is how you had clarity on what you provide as an experience as a service provider. And you had a lot of confidence in knowing the results you could bring for someone. There seems to be a bit of a catch 22 because I've noticed a lot of the clients that are coaches, maybe starting out, don't have that confidence yet. And so this is a bit of a question of chicken or the egg. Did you have to come with your mindset of confidence so you could sell? Or is it through some other experiences that you were able to build that confidence and any recommendation for these new coaches? 
I think when you get really good at what you do, it's very easy to sell because you can say, I've been doing this for 15 years. I'm highly experienced. I can tell you some cases of people just like you that I worked with and look what's happened to them. Because people are looking for credibility. Here I am and I can't start a business. How can you help? Well, you can say, well, I've been doing this for years. Let me tell you seven stories. People like that, they're, they're now buying reassurance. We all turn up and can you help me? Can you help me? Yes. My next question is, how do I know that? How can you reassure me? What are you going to do to help me? So there's no doubt that experience helps. And I know for me, having been doing this my entire adult life, I now have that experience behind me. But when I was brand new with no experience, I was on fire because I was so enthusiastic. Oh my God, I've got this great talent. I've got this great training. I can help people. And I feel like people say, you're so good now. But I think, no, I was good then because I was so fresh. Now I still love it, but I've been doing it. My because oh, I'm just not in the mood today. I was in the mood every day. So yes, talent, experience, but also youth and energy. I decided long ago to employ very, very young PAs because they're so enthusiastic. They're so full of energy. They're not jaded. And so it's really both. You need to practice, really. One of the best things you can do is sit in the mirror and practice saying the fears. What I will do for you is what I will give you is this is a transaction. I'm going to give you this and you're going to give me that. And so I think people do expect confidence in your voice. They expect you to not go, um, uh, oh, yeah, well, they expect you to know the answer. So because the mind learns by repetition and it loves what is familiar, get familiar. First thing, after all, all salespeople train and they train over and over again and selling some people say, how could you possibly have thought you were buying gold jewelry for 10 bucks? I don't know. The person that stopped me in the street was so confident. You know, con artists are incredibly confident. They practice, practice, practice. Boiler room salespeople practice. That's a terrible thing. But you have to practice being super comfortable saying, this is how much it is. Many years ago, I went to have a root canal. And I sat in the chair and the guy gave me a piece of paper and said, this is the fee. And I thought, isn't that interesting? He can't even say it. He's handed me a piece of paper. He's written it down because it was eye-wateringly expensive. But I paid it, you know. Two years ago, my little cat got mauled by two dogs. And I took it to the vet. And the bill, again, was eye-wateringly expensive. But I loved that cat. I could have got another cat and let her pass away. It would have cost probably a lot less. It would have gone from $5,000 to probably 100 But she was my little baby, and I was obligated to make her better. So when you get into the emotion of selling, and I noticed the vet would call and go, okay, well, the bill's up to $3,000. That what do you want to do? Now it's fine. What they were saying is, do you want her to pass away, or are you going to pay more? I thought it was very unethical. And they said, now she's in this intensive care ward, which is utter nonsense. She was at a vet. She was in a little cage. She wasn't in a ward at all. They were selling with a feeling, can you pay more to keep your cat alive? I'm like, yeah, of course. And I noticed when I went back to that little vet, which they call a hospital, it's not a hospital to get her, that everyone is the same. They're going to my baby. 
my little dog, he's my life. And so when you get emotion into selling, people start buying. It's the same thing with medical bills and dental bills. And so you can use that in a good way to put emotion into you're changing someone's life. That's priceless. You're giving someone freedom and empowerment. That is priceless. And if people buy what makes them feel good and you can make people feel good, then you have an exquisite gift and you should own it and be really, really glad. It took me a while to work out what am I selling? What am I selling? And then I got to, okay, empowerment and freedom. In fact, I didn't really. I was actually working for the BBC and they said, gosh, you do so many things with all these people. And they said, well, we've worked out what you do. And they said, you give them freedom and empowerment. You know what? I'm going to take that. So you don't have to come up with it yourself, but ask people, what am I selling? What are you buying? What's the investment? What am I giving you? You know, if I call a plumber and he comes around, he's giving me peace of mind. I've got a leak. It's coming through my kitchen. Please fix it. And, you know, plumbers are the new, oh, my God, don't leave. Hairdressers, people love hairdressers because they make them feel better about themselves. In fact, in COVID, one of the things we said is I can't bear. I haven't got my roots done. I'm not getting a blowout. And one of the things they wanted was to go back to the hairdresser, back to the salon, men and women, because it made them feel good. So keep looking at what are we buying? We are always buying stuff. I go on holiday. I'm paying more for a room with a view. I'm going to the high-end restaurant, not the burger bar on the beach, because it's going to make me feel good. And remember, if you are making people feel good, you are in an exquisite room. Own it. Feel proud of it. Decide that you are worth it, because here's the wonderful thing. When you're changing people's lives the way coaches and therapists do, you're also changing your own. You wake up and think, wow, I have a job that gives me meaning and purpose. In fact, there are nine things you need in a career, and it's very hard to find all nine except when you're a coach or a therapist. And the nine things are you need certainty, you need diversity, you need connection, you need significance, you need meaning, purpose, growth, contribution making a difference. So if you're a car mechanic, you wouldn't have that. Even as a dentist, you people don't like going to the dentist. Even as a lawyer, you may have that, but you wouldn't have it all the time. But as a coach, stroke therapist, you have certainty. You're doing a great job. You have diversity because every client is different. It's not like working on a production line. You feel very connected to your clients because you form a relationship and you become very significant to them. They sometimes become very significant to you. You definitely have purpose because you're doing something amazing. You have meaning because you're sharing that with everyone, especially if you also happen to write books or do podcasts or have a little weekly something you put on your website. You're growing and the people you're working with are growing, you are contributing to their well-being, and you're making a difference to the entire world because if you want to change the world, change people one soul at a time. Send people out and well, they aren't going to be bullies or trolls or depressed or aggressive or violent. So it's an amazing career because it meets all your needs. While you're busy helping everyone else meet all their needs and you are making the world a better place. And that's something to be very proud of. 
and indeed to own. Marissa, that is a powerful way to end this conversation. What a beautiful thing for people to be reminded of, especially if you're here listening to this and realizing that, oh my God, that's exactly what I do. How could you have this fear of sales? Well, we've looked at some of the sources from the prehistoric times, knowing that fear of rejection and the need for belonging being so strong is something that you need to investigate and look into and realize that when you reinforce what you're actually doing, providing experiences as Marissa's sharing and giving these people an opportunity to grow and to transform, it's a beautiful thing that you can do for them. And so being reminded of this, as well as looking at all our beliefs we have around money, Oftentimes, the fear of sales actually comes from the beliefs we have around money, having to investigate that. And I'm going to make sure that there are links that are available from Marissa's work so you can see what tools are available from her practice that can really help with those root causes. I am so excited to have people be exposed to these ideas, to challenge these ideas, because I'm all about making people see how sales is a beautiful act of love, which makes me ask you a final question, Marissa. I close every interview with this question, which is, what does selling with love mean to you? It means making a difference. You know, when I realized that I got my RCT program into 1,500 schools, I went to bed and I was thinking, how many kids is there? 1,500 schools. And I couldn't even get a number. I remember thinking, wow, all those children in the world feel better because of something I've done. And it was actually the best feeling in the whole world. And, of course, that's a free product. You know, we give that away. But here's the thing. I couldn't give away my free products into schools unless I was making enough money as a coach and therapist. You know, if you go to marissapeer.com, we have at least six free audios. One of them is money blocks. One is love blocks. One is confidence. Well, they're all free. But, you know, people say, oh, you know, being rich is a terrible thing. People I know who are so wealthy say, you know, I've made so much money. Now I'm opening a school. Like, I'm opening a school in... Africa, I'm opening a children's home. I'm doing a non-profit. When my daughter got married, the guy is so wealthy. He's rewilding this whole swathe of the countryside, getting bees and butterflies and extinct creatures to come back. So never think, well, making money is a bad thing. Because when you get to the you've got so much. Someone like Warren Buffett, they often do very good things with their money. So it isn't just about, well, I should be spiritual and make money for the right reason. That's wonderful. But even if you're doing it for the wrong reason, when you have so much, you probably end up doing really good things. And not everyone does that, but a lot of people do. Even Madonna, she's founded schools in Malawi. You might go, well, she adopted children. That's not the point. She's done something amazing for that country that gave her those children because she can, because she's wealthy. So, yes, when you can think, wow, I've done something so good. When people say to people, hey, your book changed my life. That song you wrote changed my life. That saying you said changed my life. Then that's what it is to me, that the feeling of rightness you get from, wow, I've impacted someone, someone across the world is having a better life because of something I've done. And that, again, is absolutely priceless. So for me, that's what it's all about. My dad always said, helping people is what life is all about. But if you help people and you're so broke that you can't even pay your electricity bill, you can't really help them. And if you're coaching, well, they're so worthy. Oh, God, I feel like a fake because I'm coaching these wealthy, amazing, glamorous people. And here I am just struggling to make ends meet. In fact, it was when I began to coach mega success where I thought, wow, 
I want that life. Here I go into someone's house that's amazing. I'm going on a private plane to see them. I want what they've got because I never wanted to feel like the poor relative. And that was very good for me because it made me elevate myself. And I'm going to that level too. And never be ashamed of that. Be proud of it because then you think, wow, that person did that. I can do it. If Tony Robbins can do what he's doing, then if Gwyneth Paltrow can start good, then could I do that too? Yeah, if you have drive ambition and self-belief. You've got to have all three. You've got to believe you're worth it, know what it looks like, and go after it with confidence, passion, and ambition. And then you'll probably be unstoppable. Well, cheers to that. Marissa, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all this wisdom. Again, everyone, there are a ton of free resources and more programs for you to discover when you go to marissapeer.com, including what Marissa just mentioned. If you have any of these money blocks, there is an audio program you can take right from the website. We'll put a link directly into the show notes. And of course, with that, please go out there, do what you do, and keep selling with love. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast.